This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. It's the great equalizer when you're presenting your paper and the PI flushes the toilet at home. I sort of cringe sometimes with this going back to normal. Well, normal wasn't perfect. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, as scientists start heading back to the lab, we reflect on lessons learned during the two months of quarantine. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 134. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Good evening, Dan. It is a late start, Josh, but we're here. We're going to do this thing. Well, you don't have to drive home when we're done. That is true. I am already home. Dan, I got to tell you, I don't think it's the later start. I do have a beer, but I don't have anything interesting to say about my beer. I think this uh, stay-at-home situation, I kind of just have the same stuff. So I thought I would talk about something else I'm consuming, Dan, these uh, Rice Krispie treats. What what Rice Krispie? Are you making them or buying them? I made some Rice Krispie treats today, so I thought I would give my... Life pro tip on making Rice Krispie treats. I'm so curious to hear because a Rice Krispie could be as simple as butter, Rice Krispies, melted marshmallow. You're right. Those are the only three ingredients. I mean, that's really one of the draws of no, Rice that, Krispie treats. No, that's where you start. I've seen people go over the top with it, but tell me your recipe. Sure. You can, but I don't think you have to, Dan. But here is a, a simple tweak you can make to set your Rice Krispie treats off the chain. You brown the butter, Dan. Do you do a, a little sea salt on top, Josh? Uh, you can, yeah, if you want to be fancy. If you're you a monster. A, you can add a fourth ingredient, salt. <laughs> but yeah, you let that butter get nice and toasty and brown. It makes a huge difference to the uh, Rice Krispie treats. Yeah, it adds flavor to a Rice Krispie treat that's not just corn <laughs> syrup and Rice Krispies. They are delicious, though. Do you remember? Do you remember when the store-made version came out? Well, that was the other thing. The only other opinion I have on Rice Krispie treats is the store-bought ones are garbage. Yeah, it's not. It was never as good, but it was no. incredible that they innovated on that. And you know, I don't even really particularly like Rice Krispies or marshmallows, but together somehow it works. Well, if we're keeping it to the a non-alcohol baking theme, Josh, I made the first cake that I think I've ever. Well, I can't say that I've ever made. It was probably the first cake I've made in ten years that didn't come from a Duncan Hines box. <laughs> My son turned four, and I made a funfetti cake out of ingredients. It was pretty incredible uh, to mix butter and sugar and flour and cornstarch for some reason. Now, what, what makes the funfetti? Did you make your own funfetti, or you purchased that? Sprinkles. You put sprinkles into the batter, and <laughs> I let him help me make it. And it turns out that if you mix it a lot, then all the colors kind of run together and make a, a grayish... <laughs> Anyway, so that happened a little bit, but it tasted great, and I had a great time making it. Did you know Funfetti is one of my favorite cakes? I will make this cake for you, Josh. It was very good. Fantastic, Dan. Well, I know, you are a, I know you're a baker. Have you been making bread? Yeah, I feel like the, the person who is made for a quarantine, we're going to talk about lessons learned from a quarantine, but since I was in grad school and had no money, I cut my own hair, and I have continued to do so, and I think you have too. Uh, Same. You have buzz cutters. You just go to the right level of buzz cut and you're all set. I've been baking our bread for uh, probably a year and a half or two years now before the quarantine started. 
I have sourdough from the local co-op. I've I've made sourdough starter before, but it never it always made a very flat kind of oozy loaf and so it was never good, but I got some sourdough starter from the co-op and it's much better. So yeah, I'm I'm like living the the life of uh hipsters that you see on Instagram. You were made for this. Actually, Dan, I'm glad you mentioned haircuts and bread because I think there's a little bit of insight and history into our friendship because I know, Dan, you were the one who gave me my first pair of hair clippers as a wedding gift our first year of graduate school. So that's what got me started cutting my own hair back in the day, uh, which is very handy now. Man, I was a high roller back then. That's probably a $20 (laughs) gift, Josh. (laughs) As a a grad student income back in those days, that was pretty nice, Dan. Thank you. It had the whole set, you know. And you use those for how many years? They finally gave up the ghost uh, one year ago, Dan. I, I think I calculated how many years. It was like 15 years or something, but I finally had to replace them last year. Um, well, you're welcome, Josh. I wish I could have replaced <laughs> them for you. Think how much money I saved in 15 years of haircuts. That's crazy. Yeah. I find personally that not taking any pride in my personal appearance has <laughs> saved me so much money over the years. Well, we have a look for podcasting. I'll say that. That's true. But uh, you talk about bread making, Dan. I believe I gave you a bread maker's Bible back in grad school. I'm so glad you brought that up. We're like the gift of the Magi here. Yes, I still bake exclusively out of that book. It, uh, there are a few handful of recipes. Some of them I have memorized by now, but that is the only book that I make bread out of. Well, somehow back then, we knew that these gifts would come in handy someday. So we were just or preparing for this. All right, Dan. Well, we're going to talk a lot more about the quarantine and things that we have learned beyond cutting our own hair and baking bread. Uh, but before we do that, I wanted to say a couple of thank yous. And the first one is to our newest Patreon patron. A special thank you to Anushka. Thank you so much. And we will look forward to seeing you on our Slack channel for Patreon patrons. And we also want to talk about our friends at Promega. Uh, Josh, I know that a lot of people are not in the lab right now. They are out for quarantine for COVID-19. And I know that a lot of students and faculty have been focused on writing. This is a time where you can't be in the lab doing experiments, but it's a great time to finish up that manuscript or to find a new way to communicate the research that you've been doing to think about it. Uh, Promega has a webinar coming up very soon uh, called Writing About Science, Tips and Tricks for Communicating Your Research. And they'll have tips for preparing articles for journal publication, advice on sharing the story of your research in blogs and other publications, And the panelists will discuss overcoming the biggest challenge of all, which is getting words on the page. So that webinar will be at 9 a.m. Central Time on May 27th. So that's going to be coming up pretty soon after we post this episode. You can just go to promega.com slash hellaphd to register. And that'll actually be available on demand afterwards. So if you don't make it in time for uh, the initial airing of that webinar, you can still catch it online. All right, Dan, are you ready to move on to our main topic of the week? Hit me. All right, Dan. A few weeks ago, I reached out to to some folks on Twitter. And and the question I had that had been rattling around in, in my brain was, you know, at that time we'd been quarantining for felt like years, but I think in reality it had been about 6 weeks at that point. Now we're going on about 2 months. And you know, it got me thinking as unsettling as so much of the the things that are going on right now are. I couldn't help but think that there were other things that 
that I had learned or had observed about uh, myself and the people that, that I was talking to who were in science and in academia, that we were finding, we were learning positive things about ourselves, or we were discovering new habits that suddenly were okay to examine a little bit. And, and I guess what it got me thinking of were, are there things we're learning now during this unprecedented change to our work habits that might be useful for us as things move back to normal. Yeah, just a few minutes ago as we were preparing to chat, you described this, and, and I think it's an excellent analogy. You said it was an experiment. And as I've been sitting thinking about this, this is an experiment that involves the entire country. It involves every scientist in the United States almost, except for the ones that we've, we've mentioned that have had to go in uh, because they were considered essential workers. Uh, but, but the reality is we are all working in a totally brand new way together. This is not as if you went on paternity leave and you had to figure it out on your own and the rest of the world went to lab without you. This is all of us have had to figure it out. And I think some things have worked and some things have not worked. And I'm really excited to discuss what are the outcomes of this experiment and what should happen after this? What are we going to take from what we've learned? Absolutely. So maybe part of this episode could be then thinking a little bit, doing a little bit of preliminary examination of the data now that we've kind of run this experiment for a couple of months. And, and let's just talk about some of those things that, that maybe have been surprising. And, and the first one that I wanted to talk about has to do with the pace of work. And so, you know, I would certainly say that depending on different people's specific responsibilities and jobs, some people may feel busier than others. But I think in general for, for scientists, our pace of work has slowed down considerably. You know, those of us who are tied to a laboratory um, on a campus or an institution literally can't go in. So uh, experiments, for the most part, had to grind to a halt. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call it that slowing down our pace of work does actually have some advantages. Do you think that there's a difference here? I've, I'm going to follow you down this road. I'm wondering if we need to make a distinction early on between slowing down for the pure knowledge computer worker or the person who is just on phone meetings versus the person who really needs to physically do experiments. Because I, I feel like for you and I who have been doing our work, but from home, but we don't have a commute, there's a different experience than if, you know, when we talked with Jada a few weeks ago, 25 fly lines are now gone and have to be recreated someday. So what do you mean by slowing down and, and how does that differ, do you think? Well, so I was talking to, I've been talking to a few faculty about sort of this very thing and about what it's going to look like when, when labs start back up. And, and, you know, Dan, I think this is a, a topic for a future show. I mean, I know at my university, there are plans for labs to, to start opening their doors back up within the next couple of weeks. But, but that doesn't mean that that's going to look exactly like it looked when things shut down in March. Um, things are going to look very different for for an extended period of time. And if we think about this as an experiment, we did the first trial of the experiment. Now the second trial is going to be sort of this in-between space. And maybe this phase we're moving into for lab workers could also in some ways be seen as a continued slowdown. Because I think for a lot of people who are jumping back into the lab with social distancing and trying to keep fewer people in the lab at any given time, you know, each individual lab worker, especially trainees, each grad student, each postdoc, each undergrad, are going to just have fewer hours they're allowed to be in the lab. And so what I wonder if that's going to lead to is 
more thinking and more intentionality about the experiments that are done. And, and what it made me think about, Dan, was our episode we did where we interviewed Jimena Giudice. Episode 122, you mean? Thank you. Thank you. Very good. You're good. You have those memorized. All of them. <laughs> and, and, you know, she reflected on doing her scientific training in Argentina where you know, funding and resources weren't quite at the same level as they were here in the United States where she did her postdoc. But one thing that was evident to her when she came to the U.S. to do, to do research was there was almost this mentality of, well, there's so many resources that let's just do experiments, you know, and there was more doing and less thinking. And so I think one advantage that could possibly come from this slowing down is certainly scientists out there, we've had a lot of time to sit and reflect and think about the experiments we are going to do once we start going back. But I think that level of thought and intentionality and organization is going to have to continue to be increased over how it was uh, previously now that we have limited time back in the lab to ourselves to actually do experiments. I think that's totally correct. And I mentioned to you, I spoke with a mutual friend of ours who is making plans for her lab to go back. And one of the parts of their plan, which we'll see how this works out, is to have something like a buddy system where one person works three days in a row uh, because they have to have 50% occupancy. So one person that's your buddy works three days in a row uh, setting up and doing experiments. And when they are done with their three days, they have left things in such a place that you can do your experiments. So maybe they divide the cells or they set up the assays or whatever it is that has to happen before you get there and you just pair off three days, three days. And the amount of thinking and communication that's going to take, I think could be revolutionary. And it's, it's one of the ideas that, that you and I love to talk about, which is how do we make science more team-based? And in, the, in this next phase of experimentation where you can't be there every day, probably, how are we going to adapt and, and make it more collaborative and better planned? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up, Dan. And that's been a drum that we have, have beaten for quite some time is if there is a drawback to the way academic training goes at the graduate level, it's this individual nature of it where it's, you know, you have your project, I have my project, and it's really up to you to drive your project forward. But this new way of doing things is going to necessitate just that. There's going to have to be teamwork, people working together. And I was having a conversation with a faculty member who runs a neurobehavioral lab and the types of experiments they do really go on over the course of, of days and weeks. There's really not, there's not a way that one person could just start their experiment up for a day and then shut it down for a day and then back up for a few hours. So they're actually having to rethink the way their entire lab is structured with regard to whose project is whose and thinking more about, okay, these are our lab's projects and we all are going to have to work together to move things forward. And <laughs> to some degree, Dan, that's exactly what we've talked about on the show, as potentially having a lot of advantages in this situation is actually forcing that to happen in some instances. It'll be interesting to see how uh, how that turns out. And I think the lesson um, from, from that episode 122, it's that going slow doesn't make the science less effective. It makes the science more effective that you have planned out the experiments. There's less waste in the process because you have taken the time and, and you know, one challenge that is going to present itself, I run a training program for post-baccalaureate students 
And that program is starting over the summer. We've got new students coming in and we're having a lot of conversations with faculty about how do you train new people in this, <laughs> in this new environment. You know, we have a lot of first year graduate students coming in in August who are doing lab rotations. If you're socially distancing and having, you know, these more atypical hours, how do you teach someone how to do a very hands-on process from a distance? And those are some unanswered questions, I think, at this time. Yeah, I would love to put a little pin in that. One of the things that's come up in my workplace, I work with a lot of people who have spent a, w- a long time in their careers, and we we have a sense of what the business is and what needs to get done, and we can connect over Slack, and we can connect over Zoom, and we can do our work. But one of the concerns, and I think this is probably going to be echoed in what you just said, is that if we were to hire somebody new who maybe didn't know the business as well and they didn't come into an environment where we were all working closely together and you were having kind of hallway conversations and and sitting in on presentations that you weren't invited to because you saw they were going on and things like that, the difference between what I know as a seasoned person in my field versus I'm coming in as a trainee is wildly different. And what does this look like when we're at 50% occupancy in a lab and I'm not... I'm not going to seminars because seminars aren't happening and, and all of those challenges. I, I agree with you, Dan. I think it might be harder to integrate into the culture and come up to speed than it might have been uh, typically. One thing that has surprised me, though, is I've been <laughs> talking to, and this is in an academic setting, talking to faculty, I was really concerned that it would be hard, actually, to find labs to take on a new person right now you know, in this environment. But I think there's a certain transient nature to academia and academic labs. So there's a lot more openness, like people come, people go. And even during, you know, Dan, we did a whole episode on defending your thesis during the, during the quarantine. And, you know, throughout these last two months, people still graduated, people still moved on to other jobs, labs have lost people who have moved on to other, other positions, and have work they need to do that's done by transient people. And so I think the flip side of the coin is, from PI's perspective, there's, and, and as you talk to, to Jada as well, there's this work that is built up that needs to happen and there, it takes people to do that work. So I think labs uh, out of necessity are going to try to be as creative as possible to ramp new people up to speed. I actually talked to a PI who runs a, a Drosophila fly lab uh, about this very thing. And they've actually been in the lab and rigged up some elaborate setup where they can attach a, a cell phone uh, to a tripod that looks at the microscope that then over Zoom, they can show someone how to look at the histology of this fly or something like that. So I think, you know, it, maybe this will bring up some, some creativity, uh, allow scientists to, to utilize some of that creativity that, that maybe they so enjoy. I mean, that'd be kind of fun, right? Solve some of these problems. A, I'm going to make a cell phone microscope app, but he, here's all it's going to do. It's going to insert eyelashes <laughs> into every image so that it feels like you're really there. <laughs> that's been my, mostly my experience, looking at my own eyelashes. I think that's great. All right, Dan, well, I want to move on to, to number two. The second one is that technology really can make information and communication more accessible. What do you mean, Josh? Give me one example that we're using right now. <laughs> well, Dan, uh, we're okay, give me seven <laughs> examples. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point that I, had not occurred to me. I think you have, actually, that's a great example because, you know, we live in the same general area and doing this podcast, you have 
I've always interpreted it as jokingly said, why do I have to drive over to your house to record this podcast? We could just do it remotely. And I was very resistant to that. It seemed like a huge barrier. That's because I was the one that did the driving. That was the <laughs> difference. That's true. Maybe that's true. But this has necessitated that to happen, and it has happened, and it's been fine, right? But it, it was a barrier that was more in my mind, I guess, than it was. Uh, the technology was clearly there to do it. The downside is we're talking about baked goods and not sharing a beer together, but we'll, we'll get through it. That is true. Uh, but, you know, I'll give another example. So clearly we have all become extremely versed and, and scheduling a Zoom meeting or attending one has become reflexive and second nature. But tomorrow, you know, I have the students in my program are giving their final research presentations. It's the end of their training program. This is something we do every year. And usually they give the talks in a lecture hall in front of, of live people. But under that typical way of doing things, the only people who can attend are the people who happen to be on campus and they happen to decide they've got the time in their schedule to come over to this lecture hall and sit there for, you know, a couple hours. But tomorrow we've got friends and family and colleagues from other institutions and previous places they've done lab. So many more people are able to take part in these research talks that these students are giving than would have ever been possible under normal circumstances. And so I see that as a huge silver lining. This technology that's always existed, um, but what seemed maybe a detriment, like, well, this is nowhere near as good as doing it in person, actually does have some advantages. Do you see this permanently changing uh, seminar and journal club or do you think technology will just become an add-on to what we used to do which is get to people together in a room i can't imagine that when things go back to quote-unquote normal i can't imagine this is going to supplant in-person talks and seminars and engagement like that but i think one thing that it has done is, is similar to, to i mentioned it's done for me is it's broken down some psychological barriers. The technology has existed to do this all along. It's not like we had to invent the technology to suddenly have meetings with people online, right? Uh, that already existed. But now I think we feel comfortable and confident, one, that it can work if we're organizing something, or two, taking part in something. Yeah, there there has always been a friction to adding remote people to a meeting. And, and I have worked in companies with, uh, you know, I've worked in, in companies that have a lot of programmers that don't live in the same city as the main company is because you can work anywhere and be a programmer. And it has always been a pain point for those people who are considered remote to be part of the conversation because the audio never works. And somebody didn't send out the meeting invite, but 15 minutes after the meeting started, they, re, you know, somebody types into the message, hey, wasn't I supposed to be part of this? And then we go back and start. So because it was always an afterthought, people that weren't there were treated as kind of a second class citizen or third or fourth. And what I've seen happen is the the friction, the road bumps to getting somebody remote online have gone down. It's gotten a lot easier. Now when I make a Google meeting, it says, do you want to click here and add a Zoom meeting? Sure. And I'll remember to do that because I know that most of the people right now coming are going to be remote. They're not the second thought. It's the first thought. Yeah, I mean, we're so much better at doing this now, for sure. And so Kate Bradford responded on, on Twitter. And, and I happen to know Kate does a lot of professional development workshops and training for graduate students at Johns Hopkins. And she wrote, 
I'm thinking there will likely be a virtual option for almost every event. However, that means we need to invest in getting better tech in the seminar rooms. And I think that goes along a little bit to what, what you're saying. Certainly, we've realized we can do this. We just need to make sure that um, our setup is such that tuning in online actually is viable compared to being there in person. And I think what this has forced us to do is we're just a lot more comfortable with the nuts and bolts of scheduling these things, taking parts, part in these things, and probably being more engaged while we're doing them. You know, there are a couple of comments that, that we got on Twitter had to do with not just the seminar portion of this, but, but even the, the one-on-one meeting aspect happening virtually. So uh, we heard from Ragna Rockabilly, which is a fantastic Twitter handle. Uh, but she said, I really feel like group meetings and meetings with my PI have been more productive online with screen sharing aids, etc. There's something about the virtual setting that provides more equitable speaking time and fewer talking over moments. So that's interesting. Do you think it flattens the power dynamic? Slightly, I think it could, and you know, especially as a presenter. Let's say you're presenting in lab meeting or journal club, and you're sharing your screen. I think you do have a little more command over the, or maybe the etiquette is different. I guess I I don't know. Um, it's the great equalizer when you're when you're presenting your paper and the PI flushes the toilet at home. <laughs> we we also heard a similar sentiment from Margarita Barossa who said, is it bad to say that I prefer WebEx meetings to review data than one-on-one meetings across a desk and looking at a screen and asking, can you enlarge the chart, the font, everything? On WebEx, I can look straight at the data and make it as big as my poor eyes may need. I do agree with that, Dan. I've, I've really grown to like looking at slides and data via a screen share on my own screen versus sitting in a lecture hall. Uh, I personally find it more engaging. Yeah, I hadn't really considered that, but when you are we when we've talked about doing presentations, we've talked about how you need to stand this far back from your screen and if it's not 18 point, then the people <laughs> 60 feet away can't see it. But the reality is we're designing on human-sized screens and now people are viewing it on human-sized screens. So we're going to have that the translation doesn't have to happen between what I created and what you see. Everybody has a front row seat. Should trademark that. <laughs> you don't have to practice your aim with your laser pointer either. You just use your, your mouse. And you know, one, one tool that I've used a little bit with people more recently was, uh, I, think, I think this was within Slack. You can do sort of video screen sharing type stuff with Slack. But there's the ability to actually draw on not just your own screen, but other people's screen as well. Almost like a Zoom telestrator. Has it too. Zoom has it too. It's not, uh, but I, I like Slack's version of it. It is nice. Mm-hmm. It is engaging and interactive more than you would think. Particularly for that for that point of um, where you're sharing data, because when I'm looking at a spreadsheet with somebody else and we're screen sharing, or if we're looking through a figure, I can circle the thing that I'm concerned about. Oh, did you see this outlier? And why is this where it is? Or if I'm trying to direct somebody around a web page that maybe they're not comfortable navigating, I can point them, click here, set the filter this way, and now you've got what you need. So just the interactivity is great. It'd be very weird if I were sitting next to you and putting my hand on top of your <laughs> hand as you move the mouse. That sounds romantic, Dan. <laughs> it does. A lot of cease and desist letters, though. <laughs> I guess, you know, to put a bow on, on, on this part, you know, Dan, that I like to, to play board games. I've heard. Playing board games is hard to do during a, a pandemic. But, you know, one of the things that I've done quite a bit with friends is is playing board games online. 
And we had a friend from our weekly game group who moved away to from North Carolina to California. And, you know, for all intents and purposes, that was the end of our interaction as far as playing games. Uh, it never occurred to us that he could be part of that. But since COVID happened and the shutdown, we've now been including him and he's been joining our weekly game night again, playing online. And again, this is all technology that existed before, but it's just now connecting with people in a virtual space has become commonplace that we now think of it in other contexts. And I guess I was thinking of that from the point of view, not of playing board games, but just as we think about our ability to collaborate with colleagues or to network with with people we might want to get to know and learn about their careers by sort of flexing these like technology muscles and being more confident, we should be much more able to reach out to people. And I, I just feel like the world is going to get a lot smaller with regard to um, our ability to connect and collaborate with people, um, not just in our own town or our own university, but, but just the people we want to talk to. Yeah. I, I think now that we are all at home, everywhere is equally far away. And all it takes now is to let Google figure out what the time zone <laughs> change is, and you're all set. Yeah, and I, ho- I hope we don't lose sight of that when, when things go back to normal. The next thing, Dan, number three, has to do with working from home. So many of us have been working from home a lot more than perhaps we, we did before. And so I hope that's something that we maybe don't lose sight of, is that working remotely can work and may even have some advantages. And that's something we heard from from quite a few people. Uh, Kim Walker mentioned, I hope working from home will be more accepted and more widely used. It can be so much more productive when chosen and without kids, she mentioned. I've been trying to do it all at work. And Regini Rao, who, um, who actually believes a PI, mentioned, believe it or not, I hope more of us will work from home once kids are back in school. Uh, there were a couple mentions a of the challenges there. of working from home uh, with if, when and if you have uh, little ones running around at home also. But, but Dan, I know, and you may know a lot more about this too, being in more of the business world, but I know several businesses have said they're going to continue to let their employees work from home for the foreseeable future. You know, I think about all these office buildings that are powered and cooled and heated. Uh, maybe that's not needed as much. I don't know. What are your thoughts on what we've learned about working from home. Yeah, it's interesting. My office sent out a survey a week or two ago and said, um, how are you feeling at home? And and do you feel like you're getting what you need, support, um, what you're able to get done? And how anxious are you to get back to the office? And what would make you feel safe going back in? And what kind of things we put in place? And I didn't hear much about the results of the survey, but I I heard that about a quarter of the respondents felt like they wanted to eventually get back. And a lot of people said, eh, or maybe I can go once a week or twice a week for meetings or whatever it is, but I'm I'm happy being where I am. And and the twenty five percent who wanted to be back, this is this is anecdotal. I don't actually have the data on this, largely because they had kids at home <laughs> and it was easier for them to get work done when they were away from that. So uh, there's, you know, we've got these two Twitter uh, contributors <laughs> that you read, but I think there is a real desire to have peace and quiet while you oh, do yeah, your work. Absolutely. But, you know, I, w- I will say, Dan, uh, you probably know this about me. I've always enjoyed working remotely. I like to bounce around. You know, I, I lose productivity if I stay in you one place You wouldn't choose too long. your house. I would not. Cho- I would never choose my house. And And to be perfectly honest, that has been a big challenge that I have faced is the forced working from home. 
Uh, there are so many distractions and home is not my most productive work environment. That being said, you know, this too will end. We're not going to be in this space f- forever, but I can think back on, you know, before all of this, you know, pandemic started, a place that I like to go work is somewhere like a coffee shop where, um, you know, I can find a place and, and focus, but there's sort of activity and noise going on on behind me. But one thing I know was I always felt, no matter how productive I knew I was in those spaces, there was always a little piece of me that felt a bit guilty, like I should be in the office, even though I'm getting a ton of work done here and I'm going to get less work done if I go in the office, where in my situation, there are lots of distractions. I still, there was this nagging voice in my head that always felt like, well, I should be there. You know, that's the right place to be and I shouldn't necessarily be here. And so I guess my hope is that as we're learning about where we're productive and how we're productive with this forced experiment, that that will be more socially acceptable and professionally acceptable, especially in academia, Dan, because you know, as well as anyone, that guilt that always seemed to be there (laughs) as a graduate student or as a lab worker, if you were ever not in the lab, like if you were writing from home or even writing from the library, didn't you always feel like you were doing something wrong, like you should be in lab? I was going to ask you about this because you're, you're so right. No vacations, no holidays. There's never a time to be out of lab and to feel good about being out of lab. And in, and to me, it, the phrase FaceTime, right? The, the mm-hmm. idea that you are there when your PI is there. And I guess my question is, in this grand experiment, quote unquote, where we are all staying home and we are all expected to be productive in some way uh, away from our workplace, you and I might feel great about it. And And I guess my question is, as a manager, how are you dealing with the notion of your employees or your subordinates or your students also doing remote work? Because if the PI comes in and say, and, and doesn't trust the students to be doing work when they're not in the lab or has this nagging feeling in the back of their mind that, oh, I haven't seen Josh in three days. You know, he's probably floating in a inner tube down the river. <laughs> So uh, until that relationship uh, develops some trust or some milestones or a roadmap for here's what I expect to be done with. And look, I did it. I took my three days and I finished the things I said I would do until we have that kind of interface. I don't know how we don't immediately snap back to, I better be there so that they see me there. Even if I'm sitting on, on the internet, right? I could be less productive, but I, they see me there. Yeah, I agree. And I think that was something that always frustrated me. It was just being physically present seemed to be more important than the reality of how much work you were getting done. And and that's why I've included this on the list is this is a hope that I have is that one of the things we'll take with us moving into the future is more that's more professionally acceptable within science, within academia especially, um, to work remotely at certain times and on certain things if that's how you're more productive. And, and, you know, I think what's going to be important is not even so much just the past couple of months where, you know, as you pointed out, things have really, as far as lab work goes, has been stopped. But during this next phase of time, which could go on a considerable amount of time, I mean, this could be the reality for the next year or so, that the thought now is, okay, you can come in lab, but you should only be in lab to do the things you absolutely need to do in lab. 
everything else you need to do, if you need to think, if you need to write, if you need to read this paper, if you need to have this meeting, uh, you go do that at home or somewhere else. And so I think how that goes is really going to hopefully, in my hope, sort of cement in this more acceptability of, yeah, I mean, certainly certain things you got to do in lab, but if I need to work on writing or thinking and planning experiments, why does that have to be done inside the laboratory, which may be very distracting. No, I think that prediction will probably bear out. So, so my question, one of my questions for you, responding to what you just said, it makes sense to me to plan out my experiments very carefully, which I think we should continue doing forever. The reading and the thinking and the having a meeting, I think, could go back to being a lab-based or office-based activity someday. Are you saying that just in the interim, those are things you do remotely? Or you think forever we could continue to take those offline? I think it should be an option if that's how people work more effectively. And we have a mutual friend who who owns a business, and it's the, the type of work that is very straightforward to monitor the output of employees. And so in a lot of ways, this experiment that we've talked about in the context of research, all employers have, have and all workers or many workers have have also been taking part in this experiment. And so so this friend all of his employees suddenly were working remotely. And so what it enabled them to do, given that the the output of their work was very tangible and um, countable, uh, it enabled them to actually see how productivity changed when people worked remotely or from home versus when they're working in the office. It's what we call data with an experiment. That's the results of the experiment. And, And so I was talking to him, and and he mentioned that the majority of employees have been as productive, if not more productive, working from home as they were working in the office. And and so they're going to continue to let those employees do that. But not everyone. There actually have been some employees that have struggled to be as uh, productive at home. And there can be many, many reasons for that. One, we're different. Two, our home situation. One kid, two kids, three kids. <laughs> exactly. There's very many reasons that you could be less productive at home. Yeah, and so I guess that underscores what what I'm advocating for is not this even require, you know, I hope we don't get to a point where it's required that we all, <laughs> you know, read papers and do writing at home, but that we have some space to self-reflect and know ourselves and how we work most productively and have the professional acceptance to be able to do that guilt-free. To be, to be basing the assessment on who is productive and who isn't, not on how much time you see them but on some other thing. On, on yeah, how not, some, not some sort of weird, anecdotal, traditional, well, I need you to be in the lab when I'm in the lab type No, I think that makes sense. You're, you're advocating for flexibility. Good. That's right. Um, all right, Dan, the, the fourth thing has, is, is related to this, and I, and I think we've talked about themes of this throughout all of the points we've discussed so far. And you know, I'm going to speak personally a little bit here, but just that we've learned a few things about work-life balance during this time. And, you know, one thing that I've observed, I've heard a lot, I've seen a lot of, of faculty, of administrators, of, of you know, super, lab supervisors during this time talking very explicitly and very overtly about how this is a very stressful time and output may be impacted. And, and I've heard a lot of the, these PIs and lab heads talking about you know, the importance of, I want to make sure my workers know, take time for yourself, have self-care, make sure you're doing the things you need to do to take care of yourself so that you can be, um, you know, productive. 
And, you know, I was thinking, like, absolutely, that's true. We need that now. But really, we need that all the time. That's not a new thing. So I guess a hope that I have is that there has been a bit of an awakening or at least an increased realization that, hey, (laughs) these graduate (laughs) students are not small robots that I can push until they overheat. Yeah, like our social emotional well-being actually is important and plays a part in our productivity. And as a manager, that is something to be nurtured and something to at least take assessment of, of your trainees and of the people in your lab. And, you know, I've definitely seen a lot of PIs. I'm sure they're bad actors, but um, the vast majority really step up to the plate and make sure they're, the people in their lab are taken care of. But I really hope that doesn't change, that that doesn't go away. And if there's a quote unquote, I sort of cringe sometimes with this going back to normal. Well, normal wasn't perfect, you know? So I guess that that's where I'm going with a lot of these things is I hope there are lessons that we have learned that we can take with us. And I think some lessons just about some of the ways we take care of ourselves and give ourselves space, those are things that are really important and do impact uh, productivity as well. And I hope we take some of that with us. I hope so too, although I'm a little less optimistic about this one, just because I agree with you. I think think people have been very uh, open and more concerned about other people. I think part of that is though, because we are all experiencing it together Whereas if you have a death in your family or a life stress or a money stress, that's just you. And the level of empathy that I can muster when we are both feeling it versus the level of empathy I might like, I'm, I'm working every, you know, 16 hour days. Why isn't Josh? Well, Josh has all these things going on, but I don't know about them because I'm not going through them and I might not ask. So I, I hope you're right. Um, I know that mental health has been a real concern for a lot of people, this is an additional stress that many people did not need. And it's not just the fears of the virus. It's the huge impact it's having on people's economy, their way of life, the stress of having their kids around all the time, the the loss of loved ones. Um, so I, I hope that there is, a, is an openness and that people are turning to mental health professionals and treating mental health the way that we have long talked about it, Josh, the way that we treat physical health. Um, if this is a way for us, because we are all going through it together, to also accept that there are ways to treat mental health and to deal with mental health and to destigmatize that, that would be a, a positive outcome. Dan, I think I've shared this with you offline before, but I think it's relevant to this conversation. For the past while, I've, you know, I see a counselor every couple of weeks. And you know, that's been something that's been important for my own mental health through the years and something I've continued to do. And when all this, this uh, COVID stuff hit and all the stay-at-home things were being put into place, you know, my counselor reached out to me and said, this was probably two or three weeks in to staying at home for me. And she said, hey, you know, if you'd like to, we can move our meetings online via Zoom or, or some other platform if you'd like. And I started reflecting and realized, you know, I'm kind of feeling okay right now. <laughs> and, and this was not a joke. This forced experiment helped me realize a lot of things that were leading to some really stressed feelings in my life. This feeling of having to work really hard and juggle all these balls and have this busy uh, work schedule and travel schedule and social schedule. And, um, you know, by letting the foot off the gas, even if it was a forced, uh, a forced slowdown, 
really did have a positive impact on my mental health. And I think that has been really insightful for me personally. And I know this is not going to be true for everyone. You know, various people, depending on who they are and their own circumstance, may feel very differently. And I can appreciate how this situation could be very isolating and increase stress for a lot of people. Um, but I think one of the things that I personally have taken away that I hope that I can carry with me when this when things go back to some semblance of normal is that I don't have to do everything. And actually, there is some benefit to just taking a break sometimes. And I don't think that's something that I would have possibly learned in the way that I have if I wasn't forced to do it in this way. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And and now through the process of mindfulness, you will know the difference between feeling that way and feeling this way. And you'll be able to recognize, hey, I don't have to be, I don't have to feel like I'm going 100 miles an hour all the time. But there's so much pressure to do that. Any of us who are professionals or living in this sort of this society, you know, there's certainly the pressure to work hard and to achieve more. But just this societal pressure to keep up with people and, and do things with friends and do things with organizations. I think I was getting to a point where I was feeling guilty if, you know, I had a free night or if I had two free nights in a row, like, oh, I should be utilizing this time in some productive way as if that was more important than my own sort of mental well-being. Now, how are you filling your nights? Watch movies with my family three to four nights a week. Uh, you know, I do. I play games online. I mentioned I maybe connect with some people if I want to online or I just relax, <laughs> go to bed, read a book, you know, sit on the deck, you know, things like that. Things that I, I would record a podcast. That's still a podcast. That's still happening, Dan. So I don't know. It's just been an interesting uh, personal reflection. Uh, so, so I guess that's one thing I hope for that maybe we've all learned a little bit about. We talk so much about work-life balance on this, on this show. And when things do resume some semblance of, of normalcy. I hope we, I, I, don't, I don't even know how to, how to say this. We take some of this with us where maybe we've learned some other things that are important besides just doing more, working more, achieving more. Those, th- those other things are worthy too, beyond that. Here, here. All right, Dan. And then the last thing, and, and this is pretty simple and, and maybe is obvious, but I think just a reminder that science is really important and worthy of doing. If anything, I think this whole situation with the pandemic has brought that into focus. You know, we spend a lot of time, this whole show, Dan, for the last five years we've been doing this, we talk a lot about grad school and specifically science training and how challenging it is and how many problems there are. Sometimes I fear we make it sound awful. You know, like, why would anybody want to do this? And it was hard. You know, we went through it as well. But I think, you know, deep down, and we've said this on the show too, one of our reasons for doing this show is we believe that science is really important and we need really smart, really interested people doing this stuff. And what we don't want is we don't want the science training process to destroy people and push people out of science um, who really have some important things to contribute. And I think this whole pandemic situation has made it crystal clear, a really crystal clear reminder how important science is for society, for the world, for solving big problems that we are going to face, including the ones that we can't even predict that that we're going to face. And so, I don't know, that just was a reminder to me that, you know what? Wow, science. Science is important. As, as Dr. Levio said last week, he'd bet on science. 
I mean, there there are so many pieces in the chain that are going to get us out of this pandemic, but none are more important than the scientists. There will be no vaccine without hundreds or thousands of scientists that have understood the basic elements of life and can recombine them to make a vaccine. I don't know. I don't even know what system they will produce it in, but I'm sure it'll be mind blowing. Otherwise, we 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 are. 16th century leeches and and praying to get it away and moving away from certain places because we think that it's in the the miasma era it's without science we will never go back to normal with science i am confident we will go back to something like normal and i mean that in the best possible way josh clearly we need manufacturing and we need policy and we need all those things but at the heart of it are scientists and as the whole world waits with bated breath for, for a vaccine. And we're, you know, we're looking for good news about treatments and, and a successful vaccine trial. You know, the advances these scientists are making right now, the building blocks of those didn't start when coronavirus hit. That is sometimes hard to remember when you are a graduate <laughs> student working on amino acids 1700, but you're right. You know, Dan, I can remember interviewing for grad school as an undergrad back in 2002, dating myself now. And I remember interviewing with a faculty member named Mark Dennison who studied coronaviruses. I was a budding microbiologist at that time. And I very vividly, for some reason, remember this conversation. It was after our interview. He was walking me across campus to my next interview. And he was sharing about his interest in why he studied. I think I might have asked him, why do you study coronavirus? Because at that time, and really up until, I believe, SARS, coronavirus was not really known to cause any serious human infection. And so at that time, you know, the number of people studying coronavirus was very small. <laughs> and there, I think there was a lot of convincing that had to be done to funding agencies on even why this science was important. And, and I remember him telling me that he just thought the biology was so interesting with these RNA viruses and how they worked was just so fascinating. And now, you know, I see him on the news and I read articles about him and, um, you know, another scientist at UNC, Ralph Barrick, similar thing. You know, these were, you know, these were not scientists in the limelight chasing after these really hot public health topics. But we wouldn't have a vaccine within the course of a year if we didn't have these faculty members and graduate students and undergraduates who have been working on just these interesting scientific questions. You know, we wouldn't know how to make these these RNA type vaccines where you can deliver RNA into a human and then the human's body translates them into protein, you know, that's being utilized now to make a coronavirus vaccine. But we didn't learn about that technology two months ago, right? People have been studying this for a long, long time. Yeah. Imagine, imagine the world in which people started dying from this disease and eventually somebody figured out it was this new virus and we had never heard of a coronavirus and you had to figure out how it worked and you didn't know how an RNA virus uh, replicated. And you certainly couldn't publish the sequence online that somebody else could then generate in their lab to go experiment on it themselves around you know, the other side of the world. It is absolutely astounding. And it was the day-by-day, day, what probably felt like plotting research by those people you mentioned and their graduate students and their postdocs and their technicians just pursuing the knowledge... That, that let us start at a place where, okay, 
it's a coronavirus. I've got a sequence. It looks like these 50 other coronaviruses, except the protein on the surface is more like this. And and I don't even know how many different vaccine candidates are out there now, but it's many, and many labs are racing to produce a vaccine. All of this happened within months, mm-hmm. which is absolutely because of somebody taking the time before it was cool, quote unquote, to study what they found fascinating. Yeah, and you know, this has helped me remember the importance of science, but I hope this I hope this lasts too, beyond, you know, when the COVID nineteen is in the rearview mirror. I'm hopeful that we we have a successful vaccine in record time within the course of a year, but a recognition that that only was able to happen because of this investment in science for years leading up to this. And so every time a, every time a politician stands up and holds up a paper that they think is ridiculous, you know, these ignoble prizes, I think this is ridiculous that anybody would study this. I hope that they uh, sign a waiver to any (laughs) medical benefits from scientific research that happened that they didn't approve of. I doubt that they will, but I'm just saying it, somebody will come out and complain about us studying some virus that has never infected anybody, and hopefully our memory is long enough to say, please sit down. Well, if last week's episode is any indication, that won't happen, but <laughs> we can dream. Right. <laughs> Galileo hoped that too. All right, Dan, well, th- this was fun to just spitball some of these ideas with you, just some musings that I know we've had over the past few weeks and months. This has been a really challenging time in a lot of ways for for really all of us in, in different ways. You're, you're so right, Dan, you mentioned a few times one thing that's very unique about this is we are all going through it together, really from a worldwide point of view. You know, this is something we're all all dealing with. And I hope at the very least, some of these lessons that we're learning we don't forget so quickly and that we take these with us as we move into the new normal of, of science. Yeah. And we're very appreciative to the people who responded on Twitter. Um, people who talk to us in our, our Patreon Slack channel emails we get. Um, it's, it's really helped us to process what's going on and to hear your different perspectives. So please keep that up. And as we do move forward with labs and researchers and graduate students going back to work and, and getting back into their research labs, we want to hear from you and we want to hear about the experiences that, that you are having and what are some things that are working, what are things that aren't working. As we mentioned, people, the scientists are going to have to be extremely creative and I think it's going to be even more important for there to be sharing of ideas and sharing of, sharing of, of things that work and, and don't work with each other. So um, if you have some ideas or thoughts, we'd love to hear them. Um, if you have some questions or topic ideas, you can send us an email to podcast at hellophd.com. You can send us a tweet at HelloPhD. If you like the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love getting your feedback and it helps new listeners find the show. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, HelloPhD.com, click the Become a Patron button, or you can visit Patreon.com slash HelloPhD. We would appreciate the beer money, and we are so thankful to the ongoing support from all of our patrons. Dan, I've finished up my Rice Krispie Treat. I didn't, I didn't hear it crunching in the microphone. I expected to hear. I'd actually finished most of it before you got on the call. Well, it's right in the notes. I appreciate that. But I do have that. I can see the crumbs on my keyboard. I could really hear the, the timbre of the, the brown butter <laughs> in that one. That was really, it sounded great. Dan, as always, it has been, been fun talking to you. Uh, do you think when this is all said and done, we'll come back to the studio together here in one place? 
I suspect we will, and we'll have to get a growler to celebrate. I can't wait for the day. All right, Dan, we'll see you next time. We'll see you then.